Over my dead body. Over my dead body. Over my dead body. Dad bod. Dad bod. Dad bod. Dad bod. Welcome to Over My Dead Body, my podcast about a new dad. I'm your host, Alex Liddington Cox. Uh, so I'm a new dad. Uh, I have a four-month-old at home at the moment, and one of the number one questions that I got after she was born was, well, what does it feel like to be a new father? And I didn't really know how to answer that. And then I realized that one of the things that new parents tell you is there's nothing that can prepare you for what it's going to feel like to become a new parent. And when I reflect on, you know, my daughter's first few days and first few months alive, I'm like, that's not actually true. I think drug use prepares you for being a parent. It prepares you for the feeling, at least. The sort of sensations that I've felt while experimenting with illicit drugs are absolutely comparable to the sort of feelings and sensations that you get after having a kid. There are two stories that really stick out. One was the second night that she was alive. Um, my partner had had an emergency C-section, which was pretty harrowing. We were, we, we were almost kind of stuck in the hospital because our daughter was born at two and a half kilos. Um, my partner had developed some high blood pressure and it was thought that that had kind of stymied the baby's growth, but we didn't know about any of this because it wasn't diagnosed properly because she'd been given some substandard care. And so we're in the hospital and our daughter was born at two and a half kilos and they don't let you leave the hospital unless they're at two and a half kilos and rising. Um, and what happens to all babies, this is also something that we didn't know, is that they lose about 10% of their body weight in the first week. So we were kind of doing the numbers and we're like, Jesus Christ, we're going to be here for a week. We thought we were going to be home in two days. And given that my partner was also dealing with roller coastering blood pressure which was of immense concern to the doctors you know it's a very stressful time it didn't match what we had in our heads for you know the perfect birth but the second night that she was alive she wouldn't sleep unless she was on her mother or me and that's a nightmare scenario because you're like well someone has to stay awake with this kid all night long um, because if you fall asleep, like you could suffocate her, you know, she weighs as much as two and a half bags of flour. Um, so I was taking the 3am till 6am shift and I'm sure most of you are the same. If you get less than six hours sleep a night, you hate everyone in the world. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I was high as fuck. I was absolutely tripping balls. I mean, I had my daughter in my arms, she was sleeping, which when your baby cannot sleep and you've been through a stressful time, there's nothing better than the sound of silence or just that that light sound of their breathing, of a two and a half kilo uh, child breathing. That's the coolest thing. And in that sort of crazy sort of 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. period, I realized, oh, that's right, Collingwood are playing West Coast over in Perth, and I can watch the replay on my phone in the darkness with my headphones on. And Collingwood unexpectedly got up. Um, we were definitely not expected to win that game, and after last year's grand final, I was pretty fucking happy about that. And I was just sitting there going, like, I think this is the greatest night of my entire life, to have, like, whatever chemicals are rushing through my body and have you know, my daughter in my arms and Collingwood get up. I'm like, this is the fucking tits. And not only that, I got to the end of my 3 till 6 a.m. shift and was awake all the next day and 
did similar shifts the next night and was still functional the following day. And it was only, I think, the, I think it was the fourth day that I was finally trying to put a pram together and I realized that my brain was no longer functioning. And it's at that stage that I finally collapsed and went, yeah, actually, I need to get um, some unscheduled sleep. Uh, but until then, it just felt fucking amazing. Now, this feeling kind of continued uh, well after she was born. I took it upon myself to do uh, the overnight feeds to give my partner a break because she was dealing with this newborn baby at home. I got to get up and go to work. And so, you know, in those first few months, it was very inconsistent and chaotic. But anywhere between sort of two and four o'clock in the morning, our daughter would wake up and need to be fed. So I would feed her um, expressed breast milk out of the bottle. And I did this for two months straight. I'm not saying this to brag. I am saying this that, you know, again, like on that little sleep, I would normally expect to be beyond psychotic with just no patience. But I just used to get up and I'd often stay up later with her. You know, I'd feed her. That would take all of 15 to 20 minutes. And then, you know, the ashes were on. And so I'd often feed her. It would take 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and then I'd flick on a session, put her over my shoulder. She'd go to sleep. Um, and I would sit there for another hour watching the cricket, sending some dopey comments to some friends of mine and just feeling amazing. And then I'd put it back down, often at four, five o'clock in the morning, get up and go to work the next day and would be functional, which was really quite shocking. Uh, there were days where I would go to work with a total of nine hours sleep from the previous three nights. So that's three hours on average. And I'm a journalist. Like we have daily deadlines, which sometimes I don't meet. Um, but I would file. I would be able to write 800 coherent, pretty good words. And I was like, wow, that's, I'm not normally capable of doing this. Like it feels like I've got superhuman powers. And the only experience that I've got that's comparable to that is being at the third day of a music festival. Like, I can't believe I'm up at three or four o'clock in the morning again. Oh, that's right, because I've been smashing ecstasy for the last three days. Now, the reason why I think the two, could, like why it could be connected, I'm not, a, I'm not a chemist, but oxytocin is suspected to be one of the hormones or neurotransmitters. I'm an armchair biologist, I should add. Um, it's suspected to be one of the chemicals that your body releases when you take ecstasy. Dopamine and serotonin, I think from the reading I've done, like those are the ones that definitely get released. Oxytocin is also, it's thought that that's released. Now, oxytocin is the love and bonding uh, hormone. We know a lot about this because uh, there's a lot of research to show that it is, uh, that it plays a big role in contractions and the bond between mother and child in breastfeeding. Um, so, you know, we were in birthing class and there was this lovely uh, midwife. Um, I think her name was, her name Kelly, can't remember, but she was fantastic. But the only thing that I took issue with is when she said um, that a woman will never have more oxytocin in her system than those moments right after birth. And I was like, mm, I reckon if it was a race between the oxytocin of an ecstasy hit versus childbirth, I reckon it'd be a photo finish. You know, to some extent, this is speculation. You know, I don't know if um, if oxytocin is released in, you know, the wake of taking MDMA. Um, but I do know that the feeling 
of having a child and the extra energy that you get and the sense of love and well-being that you feel after they're born is very comparable to those sort of experiences that I've had with some dopey mates at a deck mantle festival. I think it's also a bit regrettable that there's so much research on the role that oxytocin plays for new mothers, but there's not nearly as much about the role that it plays for new fathers. And that's a shame. That's a real shame because I was feeling a whole bunch of things in the wake of my daughter being born. And I had these superhuman abilities briefly and no one was really, no one really prepared me for that. Um, no one told me that I was going to be able to do that. It was, I mean, you know, I'm not complaining, um, but it just felt like, why, why, why has nobody told me this? Not why has nobody quantified this? You know, I was reading that um, the extent of research, you know, I could be wrong, like don't take this as gospel, but I was reading that the extent of research about the role that oxytocin plays uh, between father and new child ends somewhere around some experiments where they basically gave serotonin to rats and they noticed, hey, they're cuddling more. Um, that seems to be, uh, you know, that's not good enough. I would like to know what it was that was going on in my body uh, in the aftermath of my child's birth because it was the fucking tits. And if men are going to be properly prepared for those first few months after birth, they need to know that information. Most of it seems to be you are there to be, you know, you're, you're there to support your partner. And of course that's the case, but things are happening to men as well in the aftermath of birth. And it really is an afterthought. There's another drug that I think is comparable to, and that's the LSD magic mushrooms family, if you will. One of the things that I hear from parents a lot is like, you don't sweat the small stuff after you have a kid. Um, it becomes harder to feel anxious about, I don't want to be condescending to people who don't have children, but it becomes harder to feel anxious about trivial things. You know, the things that can make us feel anxious and we're resentful of the fact that they do make us feel anxious. You know, the odd person at work, your body, food that you're putting into you, um, where you live, what your income level is, all that stuff. So that doesn't sound insignificant at all, but um, it becomes harder to get anxious about that. Being late for stuff, like that sort of stuff. You're no longer anxious about that sort of stuff. And it reminds me of a time where I was in a really bad place. Some really traumatic event had happened and I was pretty scarred by the whole affair. Um, I, won't go into, uh, I won't go into the details, but it did involve some violence, which was quite confronting. And I didn't do this by design, but a couple of friends of mine said, um, do you want to take some acid? And I was just like, I've always been curious about that, actually. Um, never had the opportunity. Sure, let's do it. And I mean, the trip was amazing. I mean, it was one of the greatest days of my life. I realized in the aftermath of it, I felt better. Um, my anxiety levels had gone down. Um, and it wasn't in a way that like when you take antidepressants or painkillers, that was, it, was, it was different. Like, you know, the effects of LSD wear off in 24 hours. But like weeks and months afterwards, I felt just spiritually better. And, you know, when you when you take LSD, there's this... Or, or magic mushrooms, there is this vista broadening sort of feeling that you get that lasts long after the trip's over. 
and I felt like I had a broader perspective. I could put the, I could put the recent trauma into a broader context that made it less painful, and could get on with my life. Now, this is not a totally crazy idea. There's some fascinating research going on about uh, the way that LSD and magic mushrooms now is actually the favored ingredient because LSD can be too strong, but how magic mushrooms can help people who are in palliative care um, deal with that existential crisis that you get when you're facing death. I mean, just, just linger on that thought for a moment. People who are in palliative care, antidepressants don't work because antidepressants in that situation just make you feel a little bit less shitty about dying. They don't give you the kind of spiritual relief that you need. And what's being discovered is that some of these patients can really find peace when they're, when they're facing that. Isn't, I just find that so reassuring. And I remember reading one article where the researchers were talking about how some of the palliative care patients were saying that their trips on magic mushrooms were amongst the most meaningful experiences of their life comparable to a death in the family or, in fact, the birth of a child. I mean, people who are at the end of their life, you really do listen to what they have to say. And in that moment, they compare the way that LSD or magic mushrooms feels with the birth of a child. Now, I haven't, I haven't been in that position yet, but I do know that since my daughter's born, the sort of negative chatter in my head, the subject matter has changed, definitely. That's not to say that there's less negative chatter in my head, like when you have a kid, you're under more stress, but the subject matter has changed. And anytime I reflect on that, it does make me happy. Just, yeah, makes me feel better. Makes me feel good. And as an aside, when you have a kid, you also start hallucinating as if you're on LSD. I mean, every parent I would wager has had this experience, They're, especially in the first month after having a kid. They have woken up to feed their kid. They were rocking it to sleep in their chair. They put it back down. They get into bed. They go to sleep, and then they wake up with their hands kind of cupped in front of them. And in the darkness, as they wake up, they can almost see the outline of a baby. And they suddenly have an anxiety attack that they didn't put the baby down. They fell asleep in their bed with the baby on their chest and they have just rolled over and might have suffocated it. And then they leap out of bed and they run over to the cot and they realize that the kid's sound asleep where they left them. If you're really unlucky, your kid won't be there because your partner has picked them up to give them a feed. They started crying, so they took them out of the room and into the lounge room to give you a better night's sleep. And of course, didn't wake you to tell you that. Um, yeah, that definitely happened. I had that hallucination three times, I think. There was one night where I didn't hallucinate that it was me who had um, our daughter in my arms. I thought it was my partner who had done it. So I woke up and I swear, and I could swear that I could see the outline of our baby kind of in my partner's arms as she lay there sleeping next to me. And I was like kind of terrified. And so I sort of propped myself up on one arm and I was just kind of staring into the darkness to see like, is, it, is that a baby? Is it not? Like, I don't know. 
And of course, that's when my partner woke up and she just wakes up to see me staring at her and she's like, what? And I'm like, oh, oh nothing. <laughs> so weird. Uh, another reason why I want to talk about drug use at a time right after I've just had a kid is um, she might take them. And I don't think that people who take drugs are doing anything wrong. I don't buy any of the arguments that, oh, you're helping to prop up an illegal industry. The, the industry is illegal because of prohibitionists. It's not illegal because of the consumers. That's illegal because of policy. People making individual choices uh, to experiment with drugs are not doing anything wrong. And in the time that I have experimented with illicit drugs, which have been some of the most meaningful experiences of my life, I've had to take on too much risk for my liking. And if my daughter wants to go down that same path, and I obviously can't judge her if she does, I don't want her to have to take on the same risk that I did. You know, those times where you stick something down your throat and you're like, am I going to be the unlucky one? Like, is this just a bad batch? Is this going to be, is my number up? Because it's not that person's fault. I can't count the number of times that I've read that story of someone at a music festival who's overdosed and going like, that could have been me. And going, that's not drug culture's fault. That's the prohibitionist's fault. This should be safer. And I want it to be safer for my daughter's generation. I don't want the current system to be like this when she's coming of age. Over my dead body. So that's the first episode. Hope you enjoyed the first one. Bye-bye.